Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Sean Kaback has been employed with Manitoba Agriculture since the early 1990s and is currently the Livestock and Forage Specialist in the Portage La Prairie office. He was involved in the Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiative at Brandon and is active in the Portage area, belonging to a number of associations, including Manitoba Crop Variety Evaluation Team, the Crop Research Organization of Portage, and is the past president of the Portage Skating Club and the Portage Chamber of Commerce. Sean worked in Ukraine with CIDA as both a forage and a marketing specialist. He graduated from the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Agriculture with his Bachelor of Science in Agriculture. His personal interests involve sports, hunting, and helping with the family cattle farm along Lake Manitoba. Sean is married and has two girls. Welcome today, Sean, to the podcast. Before we get into the extended grazing project that you worked on at MBFI, can you share a little bit about your history with Manitoba agriculture and your applied research background? Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I've worked with Manitoba agriculture as a forage and livestock specialist for a number of years. I've been in Portage now, was in Maletta and St. Rose prior to that. I grew up on a livestock and forage farm on the west side of Lake Manitoba, so I've always had an interest in in beef and forage production and in agriculture. I guess regarding some of the applied research background, I've been chairing the McVet annual forage trials, which is five sites across the province, looking at annual forage production at the diversification centers, as well as the university site at Carmen. And the importance of that is annual forages are, are more moisture efficient than perennial forages. And so in the last few dry years, that's become really important for producers to access feed for their livestock. And it's a way of drought proofing their, their forage production. I've been involved in micronutrient trials on cereals, part of the crop research organization of Portage, carrying out a local McVet variety trials. Of course, I was involved in the extended grazing project, MBFI, and a few other projects such as that. Well, sound very interesting. What are your tasks or duties that are included in your role as a livestock and forage specialist with Manitoba Agriculture? I guess for the most part, I work with farmers and agribusiness to provide unbiased information to clients on livestock and forage production. 
that ranges anything from nutrition and working with rations last year with the dry conditions there was a lot of producers looking for different options of what they can feed their livestock when they're short of feed uh, we work on forage selection forage fertility pasture management cost production and more we also organize a lot of different extension events and field tours so beef and forage days that will be coming up in january uh, extended grazing workshops pasture tours and different events like that what do you find most interesting in your position yeah i guess growing up on a farm i've always enjoyed working in ag and and i get to do that with this position and uh, work with a lot of different interesting people whether it's uh, colleagues and and those in the industry to to the producers that we work with on a, on a daily basis so it's just the variety of work we're not just in the office we're not just out of the office so so it's that mix of of uh, indoor outdoor type of activities and, and work nice for any of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the topic or term of extended grazing can you give them a bit of a definition of what you would say that is extended grazing is keeping livestock on the landscape beyond the traditional summer grazing season so traditionally we graze livestock on our summer pastures from end of may early june till middle to end of october and when our perennial forages are, are done growing on our traditional pasture it's um, then moving those livestock into an extended grazing situation cattle can access feed on their own and the amount of feed is controlled with electric fencing Nutrients are kept on the landscape. Feeding cost is less. You have less yardage and there's less manure removal costs. And we're going to talk a bunch more in depth about kind of the costs and the benefits of it a bit later on. Can you share what some of the more common types of extended grazing would be in Manitoba or what those forages are that cattle would be eating? And maybe what are some of the less common types that you're seeing being used here? Sure. So some of the more common types of extended grazing would be stockpiled grazing. So that could be grazing of the second cut or third cut hay fields in the fall time. It could be uh, grazing of the perennial pastures after the grazing season, grazing that regrowth. There's uh, bale grazing, corn grazing, stubble grazing, swath grazing. Those would all be the, the more common and some of the less common ones that there's some use of would be grazing of chaff piles, chaff in the fields cover crop grazing, which is starting to increase in popularity. And then uh, corn stover would, would be another one. You led a study with the MBFI staff that looked closely at extended grazing at the Brookdale farm. Can you tell me how this project came to be and what outcomes you were looking for? So winter feeding is the biggest cost in a beef cattle operation. And I've helped producers with extended grazing in the past and was interested in doing more work on, on extended grazing to lower the winter feeding costs for producers. So and MBFI was kind of just getting started and interested in a variety of beef and forage projects. So, so it worked out good. The timing was right. How was the project set up and implemented? So at MBFI, there's limited wintering and confinement facilities for livestock. And so they're basically on the landscape all year long, all winter long. So with the extended grazing project, we want to investigate a variety of practices that would work in Manitoba conditions and using the land base that they have and, and the livestock and their resources. That leads nicely into the next question. How was the land base utilized to establish different strategies? And what were the major drivers in determining the grazing sequence that was used? So with stockpiled forage, 
or the grazing of the second cut hay fields at MBFI, which is basically what was used for, for stockpiled grazing. It's usually used earlier in the fall. So in that October, November period, prior to excess snowfall, we want to graze an alfalfa grass combination forage works the best. If it's 50% grass, there's less float risk. And then uh, having at least 50% grass, the grass holds onto the leaves better versus alfalfa. Once it freezes a couple of times, the leaves start to drop off. So the stockpiled forage works good in that early fall. And then um, once we move into kind of early winter in that November, December period, that's when swath grazing works best. Again, before there's excess snow, cattle will graze through about a foot of snow generally until up to about their, their eye level when, when their head's down grazing. So we want to swath graze before we get uh, too much snow in, in the dead of winter or before there starts to be drifting or before there starts to be crust form on top of the snow, just so that the cattle can access it. With a lot of extended grazing, it's easier for the livestock before conditions get really extreme in, in the dead of winter, before there's a lot of snow or before it's excessively cold. But there are some practices and that's where corn grazing works really well in the middle of winter because it stands up and cattle can access it through a foot or two of snow. And even last year with the extreme cold and snow and drifting that we had, basically there was only a little bit along the, the outer edges of the, of the field where the prevailing winds were blowing from that the cattle couldn't access. And so even though we had an extreme winter, the cattle were still able to, to corn graze through a good part of, of the middle of it. And then bale grazing can be carried out basically anytime through the winter, early or late. It doesn't really matter. There's no feed loss from the bales when, when they're placed out. Uh, the only thing with uh, bale grazing or any of the different grazing practices is in the spring melt, you can uh, get a little bit more waste. And with bale grazing, if you use rings, you, you can minimize that, that loss. And some producers will use bale rings even through the entire winter with bale grazing. We use a lot of corn grazing traditionally on our farm. And it was interesting last year because we had to pretty much snowshoe over the outside corn in order to get to the cows. And then it just dropped off and like it wasn't windy and it was beautiful inside. Like you said, that drifting had kind of been caught in those first few rows of corn. So that was really interesting to see. Yeah. And with corn grazing, we always suggest work, work into the field with the prevailing winds at the backside of the field. So most of the times our prevailing winds is from the north, northwest. So if you start grazing from the south, you will always have corn to shelter the livestock. And corn is actually a, a pretty good shelter. So it does stop a lot of the wind. Makes a pretty nice wind break. Yeah, just certain extended grazing practices work better at certain times of the year. And that's kind of what, what we found and kind of how, how we adapted that, that order and uh, based on feed accessibility and minimizing the amount of weathering or impact that the that the winter has on the feed. So like you've mentioned, you trialed stockpile, swath, standing corn, and bale grazing. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages that you found with each of these? So with stockpiled grazing, it's it's relatively inexpensive. It provides a, a nutritious and palatable feed utilized in early fall. Basically, all you need is a perimeter fence. You don't have to cross fence it um, as long as you have a water source. So stockpiled grazing works, works well then. Uh, with swath grazing, you can swath graze basically any type of cereal crop. So we tried a variety of crops, oats, barley, millet, triticale, both combination of spring and winter. And part of the reason for that is after it's cut, you get the regrowth on the 
uh, winter triticale and you, you still have the swaths there. So when the cattle come in to graze it later, they're grazing not only the swaths, but the higher quality regrowth. Some of the issues that we saw with swath grazing is if you don't graze after freeze up, you can get excessive trampling, especially if you have a wet fall. 2016 was a really wet fall. So we had a lot of feed loss because of those wet conditions. And so with a lot of the different crops in extended grazing, we only want to utilize them after freeze up, which works best. With the stockpile, because the cattle are spread out and they're on forage, they're on sod, there's less of an issue if it's wet just because you don't have that same trampling and, and feed losses. With corn, corn is a high yielding crop. And especially if it's a year where we have a really good grain production, grain overload can be a problem. So uh, one of the ways of managing that is to feed your cattle, fill them up before you move them into a new patch and using electric fencing to control access because then you're only giving them a couple days worth of feed. They basically eat cobs the first day, the second day they go after the leaves in the top part of the stock. And then the third day you're wanting them to clean up as much of the stock as possible. So with the cross fencing, you help to increase utilization and help to prevent grain overload. And by feeding them, you help to, to fill them up. Then when we talk about uh, bale grazing, if bales are placed in the fall, you can have lots of drifting if you get uh, a year with lots of, of snow. And so what some producers will do is kind of call it a modified bale grazing where they'll haul the bales out on a weekly basis or every 10 days and then they can move the bales around and then they're not sitting out in the field being drifted around so the good thing about the different forms of extended grazing is you don't really need any specialized equipment and, and anyone can do it on their farm with a little bit of modifications. How do each of these grazing styles meet the nutritional needs of cattle and were there any needs for supplementation on any of those different types of grazing styles? So with stockpiled forages, if we look at mid-October, the feed value of, of second cut will often be in, in the mid-teens mid, mid -teens for protein and mid-60s for energy. So this will meet a lactating cow's nutritional requirements and the cows can even put condition on when in this grazing situation. Uh, when we look at swath grazing, whether it's oats or barley, uh, millet or triticale, the protein will often be kind of in that 9 to 11% range. So again, it'll meet lactating cow's requirements and the energy will be kind of in that high 50s to low 60s. So we have pretty good energy and protein with swath grazing. If we're meeting the cow's needs through lactation, I mean, that's their peak nutritional period. So then any other time of the year, such as after the calves are weaned or mid gestation, their needs are that much lower. So the, most of the extended grazing will, will more than meet their requirements uh, that time of the year. And then standing corn is such high energy that it works well in the middle of winter when it's really cold, when they need that higher energy. And often the cows will put condition on when they're grazing corn. You've kind of talked already about, say, filling cows up with the stalks before you move them to the next day's corn, just to be conscious of that grain overload. Are there any other considerations that need to be taken into account as far as the health of the cattle or preparing cows to move them between the types of grazing? Yeah, I guess because we use so much electric fencing in, in the extended grazing and moving of the cattle and restricting the feed access, the cattle need to, to respect electric fencing. So there might be some training, but uh, depending on the type of feeding practices that the cattle have, were accustomed to prior, there will be a training or adaptation period required. So for example, 
cattle that are new to a certain type of feed may need to be encouraged to eat it. And uh, whether that's standing corn or corn silage, I've had calls from producers in the past that, you know, this is the first time I'm feeding corn silage, but my cows won't eat corn silage. It's like they won't eat corn silage, really, because once cows get a taste for corn, whether it's standing or corn silage, I mean, they really like corn. They really like silage, but corn and the grain, it's like once they try it, you can't keep them away. So a lot of times it's letting them get a taste for it. Maybe they were full when, when they first went on, onto it, so they weren't looking to to eat it. But once they get a taste for it, they're away. And, and that's like a lot of different novel feeds that we might feed. The cattle may not uh, know what it is, so it's just basically, you know, letting them try it. And then once they try it, they're usually going to uh, to consume it quite willingly. Yeah, so sometimes cattle, I mean, they'll adapt to extended grazing, but they just may, some will adapt quicker and better. And yeah. maybe easier keeping cattle adapt a little bit better to to extended grazing, being that the cattle are out on the landscape, they're not, they're not in the shelter in a barn all the time. There may be some cattle that don't work as well in extended grazing, but even traditional feeding, you, you will always have some of the older cows that are thinner. So you may have to put them in a separate pen and give them a little bit extra, extra feed. So it's not really any different than in a extended grazing feeding situation. What problems, and you've kind of alluded to this already a bit too, but what problems can environment and weather conditions cause when it comes to different fall or winter grazing techniques? So excess snow or severe wind chill can affect cattle that are in an extended grazing situation. So adequate shelter is important. And, and that can be, you know, good old bush that's, uh, that's dense that will stop the wind or portable wind, wind breaks. Uh, either one works. And with portable wind breaks, though, they do let some wind through. They're, they're, they are porous. And so you get some big winds and wind chill in the middle of winter. Is that enough shelter by itself? It, it may not be. So you may want to have an area that is that is better sheltered that uh, that will stop the wind entirely. If cattle are using snow as a water source, adequate amounts of snow must be available for them. And if the snow is is hard or or if there isn't adequate amounts, backup water source needs to be available. Otherwise, if water consumption is lacking, then feed consumption will not be will not be adequate. So so both are critical. That's where sometimes producers will supply a water source to the livestock when they're on extended grazing. It's always best if you can, but there are producers who will use snow as a water source. MBFI has two energy-free waters. One is a solar system and the other one works off the pressurized water system. And so these are being utilized in the extended grazing. So it helped to keep cattle out of the yard site that they didn't have to come right up to the yard and they get their water out, out in the field. And so then we were able to demonstrate a couple alternative water sources to producers as well. There's a lot of different options out there. So that just uh, works on some of these sites that maybe aren't close to a yard or that are a little bit further away from, from the yard site. And that's definitely something to think about when you're looking at grazing in your field is how close are you to some kind of a water source? Cause it's definitely not like bringing them into the yard and having the water right there and available too. Yeah. It's nice if you are set up close to the yard. And so you have mm-hmm. those options, they can come, come up to it. If we want to get the nutrients out on some of the low fertile ground, then, then yeah, we have to look at moving them further away and, and might not be accessible to the, to the yard site. What kind of environmental benefits would you say that extended grazing can provide? 
with extended grazing, there's a lot of nutrients that can be brought in onto the field and, and into the area being fed, especially in bale grazing. So there's both benefits and there's some detriments. And uh, the good is the nutrients can then be used by subsequent crops. So whether it's annual crops or perennial crops. So you have to be careful, especially in bale grazing, that you're not carrying the practice out on coarse textured soils because you could have leaching of the nutrients. Or if you're on land that has a bit of slope to it, you could have runoff of the nutrients. So you don't want either of that. It's in everyone's best interest to keep the nutrients on the landscape. It's in the producer's economic interest and, and anyone downstream doesn't want the nutrients in their, in their water source. So um, you do have to be careful with um, and considerate of, of the nutrients that are being placed there. We've really noticed in the locations where we've used bale grazing, how much better the forage is like the second year after you've bale grazed in a spot, you can see almost exactly the rings where the cows stood and where those bales were placed. It's pretty amazing what those, what that can put back into your soil and your environment. Yeah. There's a lot of nutrients in, in the bale and, and most of those nutrients stay on the landscape. What was noticed in terms of the difference between residue with each of the grazing applications? So residue can vary between the different methods of extended grazing and the time of year. So Corn, bale, or swath grazing works best on frozen ground. When I first started looking into or, or seeing bale grazing, I, I was skeptical as to how much waste or residue that there might be. But uh, when I first saw it and it was being done on frozen ground and decent quality hay, there was very little residue and probably no more than if you used bale rings or than other feeding practices. So it was actually quite positive on, on the minimal amount of residue. Uh, when using electric fence to control access to the feed, the level of residue can be quite acceptable, and that's for swathed corn or, or bale grazing, especially when the ground is frozen. And uh, the residue waste can become excessive under wet conditions, under soft conditions, and, and that's no different than feeding in, in a pen in the springtime. I mean, that's, that's when we have some of our greatest feed losses that's no different than, than an extended grazing. And that's where stockpiled grazing in the fall works well prior to freeze up because the cattle are spread out, they're on sod. And so then your feed trampling and, and residue is, is minimized. So, so we like to target around that 15 to 20% residue for on the corn side. For bale, it's often in that 5 to 10% and swath can be in, and is in that 10 to 15%. So for the most part, the residue levels are, are quite acceptable. And you have to keep in mind that residue is lost feed, but it's not lost nutrients. So it's still nutrients that are going back into the soil and building that soil health. So there's no net loss of, of nutrients. There is a there is a loss of feed. Last year, when we had the dry conditions and feed shortages, we did see some producers who nor normally corn graze that went to chopping that corn and then feeding it out with silage wagons and, and different different ways. But the cost is higher. This is an excerpt from the research paper regarding this project. Extended grazing through swath, corn, or bale grazing returns most of the consumed nutrients directly back to the landscape where cows are fed. Manure removal and feed dispersion costs are lower, and manure and feed residues contain valuable nutrients that become available to the forage on fields that may not otherwise be fertilized. This improves crop fertility and quality and can extend the grazing season. Can you break this down for us a bit more and describe why this is so relevant to farmers and what the financial impact can be for their operation? So bill grazing imports a lot of nutrients into the feeding area. 
cattle only utilize 15 to 20 percent of the nutrients that they consume in, in the feed and then the remainder is returned to the soil and that's either in the form of feed residue so if you look at an average brown bale of, of alfalfa grass hay, a 1,250 pound bale has close to 50 pounds of nitrogen, phosphate, potash, and sulfur in it. When you look at today's fertilizer prices at approximately a dollar a pound, there is $50 worth of nutrients in that bale. An average bale grazing density will often be in that 30 to 40 bales per acre. For some it's higher, but that, that's kind of the, an average bale density that we recommend and the reason for that is when you talk 30 to 40 bales per acre times 50 pounds of nutrients, that's a lot of nutrients on a per acre basis. And so we don't want to have too high of a nutrient buildup. We want it to be moderate and we want those nutrients to be captured so that then they can be utilized for future forage production or, or crop production. So when we're talking bale grazing whole, there's a bit of a challenge with nutrient dispersion because most of those nutrients are right around where that bale was placed. And so you get concentrated circles of nutrients. And so then in between the bales, there will be a lot lower nutrient levels. So how do we better disperse those bales? Well, unrolling or shredding the bales will, will better distribute the nutrients more uniformly. There is a cost to that, but you do get better nutrient dispersion and then utilization by subsequent crops. And you can really improve low fertility soils when you bale graze and you bring in all these extra nutrients. And so that's where you build up the nutrient levels and then the grasses respond. You can use bale grazing to even help control brush in areas where, where you have encroachment or too much brush. And just to give you an idea on bale spacing, if you space your bales 33 feet apart in either direction, that's 40 bales an acre. If you space your bales 21 feet apart, you're now up to 99 bales an acre. And so that gets to be a pretty high bale density. I'm so yeah. glad that you mentioned the amount of nutrients and then compared that to fertilizer, because especially this year when fertilizer costs are so high, this is a fantastic option for people to use the resources that they already have to get some of those nutrients back into spots that need it without having to pay that cost. And I think that's where producers who bale graze in the past or we're buying, buying the hay for bale grazing. I mean, sometimes they, they could buy that feed for not much more than what the nutrients were worth. And, and so I hope producers don't undervalue the feed that they're selling this year because we have such a big forage supply, hay supply, and prices have come down that, I mean, in some cases you might be giving away your feed. Yeah, that's a really good point. What financial benefits does extended grazing provide to producers? And we've already touched on that a little bit, but I think that there's, there's more to talk about in that area. Yeah. So with extended grazing, you have decreased manure removal costs or, or no manure removal costs. Uh, your feeding and yardage is quite a bit lower and often your feed costs will be less, but, but not always because in, in bale grazing, your feed cost isn't any lower because it's just, it's just a different way of feeding your bales. So then that results in, in the other costs being reduced. Uh, nutrients are better utilized on, on the landscape if we don't have any losses from moving them from the pens and then out into the field and then the spreading of the manure. When you were working through the project, what was the overall cost savings that you came up with in the cost of production? Yeah, so when we look at our specific costs for the different types of, of extended grazing that we tried, stockpiled forage is the least expensive method. And I mean, essentially, it's the cost, the standing value of, of the forage. 
and then the fencing of, of the field. So uh, it, it was approximately a dollar a day over the last four years. And so a lot of that was the standing value of the forage. Our next um, least expensive method was corn grazing. And uh, we were able to grow corn for approximately a dollar per cow per day. And that's based on corn at around the 300 to $330 an acre. And we, we were able to uh, produce over 300 cow grazing days an acre. The next cheapest was our swath grazing. And then after that was the bell grazing. And bell grazing was, was uh, fairly high the last few years with the high hay prices. And uh, when hay was cheaper, four or five years ago before the dry conditions, bell grazing was one of the less expensive. But now that we're in a lot higher hay cost situation, uh, the bell grazing cost has come up. So if you can save yourself one to $3 per cow per day, which, which are some of the savings that we saw, and that's over traditional mantabag cost of production that last year ran over $4. So even if you save yourself one to $2 per cow per day over 200 days for a hundred cow herd, you can save 20 to $40,000. So, so it can be quite significant. And, and even if you don't do it for 200 days, even if it was for a month or two, the, the savings do add up. Mm-hmm. That's a huge amount of cost savings. What are the labor and equipment considerations that a producer would need to think about when they're using these grazing strategies? So the good thing about extended grazing is there isn't a lot of extra equipment required to to start into it. Basically, you need a good electric fencer because snow is is an insulator. You need to have a powerful electric fencer so you don't want to cheap out on, on your fencer. Portable electric reels that you use for your cross fencing a step-in post, and then a good cordless drill because that's what uh, you will use to drill your holes for for your step-in posts when you're doing your cross-fencing. So labor is actually a minimum. You're only moving the cattle every two to three days, and that will only take an hour or two each time. So you actually, uh, labor requirements are less, equipment is less. I've had producers say, you know what, I hardly use any diesel fuel now in the winter because I'm only starting my tractor every third or fourth day to take out hay, sometimes even less. So you do need to have good perimeter fencing and that's where you tie your cross fencing into. So whether whether your perimeter is, is electric or not, or it could be barbed, but you should have good perimeter fencing and then that works better to tie your, tie your cross fencing into. So it's kind of the perfect time for people who are interested in trying it to try it because of some of those government grants that are available to purchase that temporary fencing and some of that additional supplies that are needed for this kind of a grazing situation. Yeah, there's, there seems to be more dollars available right now for funding mm-hmm. for fencing. So it's, it's a perfect, perfect time to do it. When you were doing the bale grazing and the extended grazing project, did you put out all of the bales or were all the bales put out right at the beginning of the winter or were they put out on a weekly or bi-weekly basis? Yeah, usually the bales were placed in the fall. And I understand it's easier to place the bales in the fall when the weather's nice, you don't have to go through snow and the rest of it. If they're placed in the fall, I don't like the twines taken off right away. Uh, one of the reasons is you get some windy weather, the hay starts to fall off. And then when it comes to grazing it, it, it could be covered in snow or the cattle will trample more. But again, it's easier to take the twine off when it's not frozen. And, and from a uh, management perspective, it, it's it's a lot easier. So I like to see the bales placed on their side, not on their butt ends. And the reason for that same thing is it falls off easier. 
when it's placed on its butt end. And if you get some wet weather, it will go in, in through the end of the bale a lot more than when, when it's on its sides. Placing the bales on a weekly basis works too. But if you get a year with lots of snow, like last year, by mid to end of winter, you're going to be pushing snow to get your feet out. So, so there's pros and cons, and it's kind of what works best for the individual situation. What differences did you notice between the various types of grazing? And were there differences in grazing days that you had between each of the types? Yeah, so when we look at corn production, it's, it's our highest yielding annual crop that we have that we can grow in, in Manitoba. So over the last five years, the corn produced 5.6 ton of dry matter an acre. So on a wet basis, that's close to 18 ton wet. So that's a lot of feed per acre. And that produced 318 cow grazing days an acre. That's for a 1,300 pound cow. And that's taking into account 20% residue being left behind. So... You can, the good thing about corn is you can produce a lot of feed per acre. And so if you're short of acres to grow your feed, we have higher land costs now in, in a lot of agro Manitoba, we need to maximize our production off of, off of those acres. If you, if we look at the swath grazing based on yields of kind of that one and a half to three ton per acre average green feed yield, that, whether that's for oats or barley or millet that will produce around 75 to 150 cow grazing days and acres. So it's, it's at least half of the corn to a quarter of what the corn produced. So basically we want to grow a high yielding crop to get the most grazing days per acre. And that's why you just can't beat corn. As long as you can seed relatively early, if you have land that's relatively productive, if you have good weed control and fertility, that's all critical to growing corn. Just wanted to mention too how moisture efficient corn can be. One of the dry years, I think it was 20 to 2019, our corn crop at MBFI did almost six ton dry matter an acre. Well, the the alfalfa grass hay that was right next to it did less than one ton an acre. And these are younger fields of alfalfa, fertilized, but alfalfa needs twice the moisture to produce a ton of dry matter compared to corn. And corn has good drought and heat tolerance and can do well on limited moisture. And so it's just a, another way of helping to drought proof your forage production is by growing some annual crops. And, and even oats and barley is more, is more moisture efficient than alfalfa or perennial grasses. But corn is the most moisture efficient crop that you can grow and you can grow so much tonnage. Are there specific types of corn? I know my husband often talks about like the heat units of corn that you would suggest that people are planting if they're looking at planting grazing corn. Every area is slightly different. So, I mean, um, central Manitoba, where I am in Portage down to Altona has some of the, it's the longest growing season in the province. So you can grow pretty much the, the highest corn heat unit uh, varieties that you want to. In Western Manitoba, you, you need to watch your corn heat units but uh, i mean this year we were above normal we were over 100 percent for corn heat units so so we didn't get too worried about picking low corn heat varieties at uh, at brandon we were growing more mid mid-range heat units probably in that 23 to 2400 so not uh, real real short and not not the longest ones and uh, generally you want them to reach corn silage maturity at the first frost that's where we maximize our dry matter tonnage 
if we grow too long of a growing season variety and and it's too wet at freeze up then you don't have your dry matter tonnage so that's where you get your yield from is is having a crop that uh, reaches maturity and is starting to dry down already for this project cattle were weighed before and after each type of grazing how did they perform throughout the winter on the different grazing types yeah, so we didn't see a big change in body condition or gains on, on the cattle from one practice to another. I mean, it, we were comparing cows with calves. We were comparing cows without the calves, mid-gestation to late gestation. So it's difficult to fairly compare, I guess, their change in, in condition that. But we didn't see a big change either on the different grazing practices or whether the calves were on or... The stage of production the biggest thing is what stage of production they're at and that's you i mean late gestation just prior to calving kind of that last third of pregnancy is when the cows gain the most weight because i mean they have a calf growing inside of them so that seemed to impact probably cow gain the most but a lot of that was uh, the the calf and and stage of pregnancy yeah we didn't see much more than a 0.1 or 0.2 change in body condition score and Corn being the highest energy crop, that's where we saw probably the best gains because it, it had the most energy. I mean, corn silage on average is mid-60s for energy to, to high 60s. And I mean, a cow mid to late gestation only needs mid-50s to high, high 50s in energy. So they're going to be getting extra energy on the corn. Were there any unexpected outcomes during this project? Yeah, I guess being serious about extended grazing requires a bit of a change in mindset about how we feed cattle. I mean, for years, producers start the tractor every day. They take the feed out to the cattle every day, but that comes at a cost. I mean, diesel isn't cheap anymore. Equipment isn't, isn't cheap. There's labor shortages. I mean, the greenhouse gases and climate change is becoming more important. So with extended grazing, we're making the cattle work for their feed a little bit more. They're having to go forage a little bit uh, harder they have to go look for those swaths through the snow. They have to go graze those hay fields when there's, when there's snow. Sometimes I think we're, we can be too kind to our livestock. And, and in the fall time, cattle have been grazing all, all summer long. And uh, as soon as we see a bit of snow, we want to take them out feed. We think, well, there's snow, they can't graze. But if you give cattle a chance, I mean, they can graze through quite a bit of snow, as long as there's adequate quality and quantity of forage there. So, I mean, if there's a foot of regrowth on your hay fields there's lots for the cattle to graze through six inches of snow we don't have to go feed them as soon as there's the ground turns white and sometimes we just have to give those cows a chance again we have to make sure they're getting their requirements met and especially if they're lactating they need the feed value they need the the volume but a mid-gestation cow after the calves are weaned she doesn't need a lot of super high quality feed and and she can forage for herself a lot easier I know when I was talking with Elizabeth, she had mentioned that you would be the person to talk to about ammoniating straw. I was just wondering what the process was to ammoniating straw. I know it's not exactly linked to extended grazing, but it is something that had come up earlier in the winter feeding series. And you were the person that, that I was directed to ask. So, so when we talk about ammoniating forages, it's a way of improving the quality of, of low quality forages especially in years when we're short of, of forage production. So 2021 was quite dry. 
we had significant feed shortages. So by injecting anhydrous ammonia into a stack of low quality forage, and this could be any type of straw, cereal straw, oats, barley, wheat, we can double the protein and we can increase the energy as well as the digestibility. So by injecting it at approximately 3%, you will increase the feed value of that straw significantly and at a cost of anywhere from one and a half to two cents for the anhydrous and the plastic. So right now, anhydrous costs are higher. It's going to cost more. But uh, when we did it last year, that cost range was one and a half to two cents for, for really improving the feed. And another benefit of anhydrous injection is if you're putting up high moisture feed, it can be used as a preservative. So in that case, you would only inject it at, at approximately 2% of the dry matter weight of, of the feed. Interesting. Thank you. That was just one of the things that had come up that I had never heard of when I was oh, chatting yeah. with her. So she had said you were the person with all of the knowledge. It used to be done a lot more, probably 20 some years ago, where okay. now producers have went away for it for, for whatever reason. But I mean, it does work quite well. And the producers who have done it, I mean, the cattle like the feed, it improves the, the intake even of, of the forage. That's an interesting option, like you said, for years that are drier or that that forage just isn't available. So yeah, and interesting talk this, about. Year, yeah, this year there's lots of feed and anhydrous is really expensive. So mm -hmm. it's not the ideal year to do it. But years like last year, I mean, anhydrous was still a reasonable cost in the fall. Mm -hmm. And there's usually straw around or roughages, but uh, you may not have a lot of very good quality forage. Kind of to summarize our whole conversation, how would you say all of this is relevant to producers and why is this important information to share? Yeah, I guess the cattle business often has slim margins and if we can lower the cost production in winter feeding, which is our number one cost, I mean, that will improve everyone's bottom line. And that's what it comes down to is we have to be profitable in this business and the more profitable we can be, the more successful we will be and the more cattle producers will be on the landscape. That's good for the environment. That's good for the economy. I mean, you think too about like the numbers you mentioned earlier, you can make a big financial impact just on extending your grazing for 30 or 60 days, even without going for say 90 days or, or trying to graze all winter. There's a, there's a big amount of money that can be saved by trying some of these practices. That's right. And so even if it's grazing your second cut in the fall time, I mean, if, as long as you're doing it after a frost, there's a lot less risk of injuring, injuring the field. And I mean, once you have a fence up around the field, it's not like you have to put the fence up every year and cost is minimal and you can get an extra month or two of grazing of those fields and it's nutritious, it's palatable, the cattle do really well on it. And, and so I would encourage anyone who hasn't tried extended grazing to take a small step and whether that's grazing a hay field, whether it's grazing a stubble field, uh, we see a little bit more interest in that and partly to have the cattle interaction and bring in some of the biology to help rebuild the soil and for soil health. So, I mean, try one of the practices for a month or two. It's, it's, it's not that difficult and I mean, it's cost effective. And is there anything else that you'd like to share about extended grazing that we haven't touched on yet before we wrap up? Yeah, I guess just in areas where there's high wildlife population. So some parts of the province have elk. Uh, some have more deer than others. Uh, some areas have lots of waterfalls. So, I mean, you you do have to be cautious. If it's something you're just trying for the first time, don't don't go 
and put all your feed out in the field for your entire winter feed supply and, and then uh, try it that way. Try it a month or two at a time. But you do have to take into account potential wildlife damage. So you may have to take extra caution where there's high wildlife numbers, or you may not be able to carry out the practice if there's just too much wildlife. So that would be one caution I would, I would throw out there. That's a good point to add. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation on the extended grazing and all of the extended grazing project that was occurring at MBFI. Thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to share what, uh, what we did at MBFI and uh, producers have any questions. I work out of the Man of Agriculture office in Portage, 239-3353. So 204-239-3353 or email Sean, S-H-A-W-N dot K-B-A-C, C-A-B-A-K at gov.mb.ca. Perfect. Thank you. There are some upcoming events that I wanted to make you aware of. So the first one is actually happening today, Wednesday, November 2nd from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. There is a cattle nutrition workshop that is being hosted by Manitoba Agriculture at MBFI's Brookdale Farm Learning Center. The agenda for today includes the silage how-to guide for livestock performers with Dr. John McKinnon, getting a handle on feed costs with Ben Ham, beef cattle nutrition, cow and backgrounder rations with Dr. John McKinnon, alternative feeds for feeding the cow herd with Sean Kaback, and Cow Bites nutritional program for beef cattle with Elizabeth Nuremberg. I don't know if there will be space available, but if you would like to try and register today, I know the deadline is short. Um, you can call Manitoba Agriculture at 204-648-3965. The second upcoming event is next Wednesday, November 9th at Brookdale Farm with Hodgins Farm. And the same uh, workshop will be held Thursday, November 10th in Ashford with Edie Creek Angus. And this is a creating a grazing plan afternoon workshop. The topics include creating a grazing plan for your farm or specific grazing project, There will be the opportunity to have printed aerial maps of targeted pasture areas in advance to assist with the planning process. There's going to be a discussion of grazing principles and how to access free resources, and then a discussion on funding opportunities for grazing. For more information and to register, you can email information at mbfi.ca. As there are more upcoming events that we are aware of, I will try to get them onto the podcast as soon as possible so that any of our listeners who are interested can attend those workshops. For this project, we would like to extend a sincere thank you to all of the project in-kind supporters who have made this research project possible over the years, including Pixseed, North Star Seed, Seacan Seed, Zagers Seed, Pioneer Seeds, Pride Seeds, Legend Seeds, Brett Young Seeds, Horizon Seeds, Mazex Seeds, and Canamaze. Without all of these supporters, projects like this would not be possible at MBFI. So thank you so much for your contribution. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. 
for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at mbbeefandforage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.